Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Philippians. Today we'll be looking at one verse only, Philippians 1.6, in a sermon entitled, God's Work in Salvation. I'll read um, 1 through 11. 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, just encourage you to grab one there in the pew in front of you and turn to page 677. 677. Love for you to open the Bible and follow along in God's Word with us this morning. If you found your way there, please go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. This is our preaching text here. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Philippians 1.6, what a verse. God's work and salvation. John McKay of the NFL, this is a while, a while back of the NFL, um, he tells a story about Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant, the famous uh, Alabama football coach. This is an awesome football coach prior to the famous one right now, Bear Bryant. Uh, he tells a story about his absolute supreme confidence. He says, uh, one day we're out duck hunting for about three hours and there's no ducks at all come by and then all of a sudden one lonely duck comes by and Bear Bryant, he shoots and the duck just keeps flying. The duck's still flying today. And Bear Bryant says, would you believe that, John? There flies a dead duck. And I love that story because it does illustrate the type of uh, man he is and the confidence he has. And really, most successful people in life, they have this type of supreme confidence in themselves. And it can definitely be, definitely be a virtuous trait to have, uh, producing kind of a cycle of success in their life. You know, confidence leads to success. And then they gain more competence, and competence can lead to more success. And so you kind of have this cycle of confidence and competence and success in life. And it's great in most fields, in many fields. There's one major exception to this, one massively important sphere of your life where this type of confidence is absolutely detrimental. It's in the sphere of religion. So we have this story that Jesus tells illustrating this great truth in the Bible in Luke 18, 19 through 14. He tells a story, and if you look in your Bible, it'll be titled The Pharisee and the Tax, Pharisee and the Tax Collector. So he says this, Jesus says in Luke 18, he told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
One man had a foolish self-confidence. The other one knew his only hope was in God. And this is the only thing that separated these two men. So today from the text, from one text, Philippians 1, 6, I want to give you three reasons to have confidence in God's work of salvation. Three reasons to have confidence in God's work of salvation. So a little context for you before we jump in. Book of Philippians. Book of Philippians is an amazing book. One of my favorite books for sure. The Apostle Paul writes this book sometime, best estimate, around um, AD 62. And he writes from prison in Rome. And he's awaiting, while he's in prison, he's awaiting an audience with the emperor where he will no doubt bear witness to the truth of the gospel and he will be unashamed before a person who holds his very life in his hands. So Paul is waiting in a dungeon. And despite these circumstances, the word joy appears over 15 times. So some people call this the epistle of joy. Paul's joy is not tied to life circumstances, obviously, as he writes from jail, but it's directly tied to the gospel, to the work that God has done in his life, and to the advancement of the gospel that he is seeing and the partnership that he has with the Philippian church. So Paul writes back to a church that he founded roughly 10 years before this, so probably around sometime between 49 and 52 AD, Paul plants the Philippian church, and that is recorded in Acts in Acts 16. It, it is an amazing story, the starting of this church. You have the conversion of Lydia down by this creek, this stream. Then you have the conversion of a demon-possessed girl. You have the conversion of a jailer. So very unusual circumstances, and you can see the sovereignty of God at play as God plants for himself what appears to be the first church in the European continent. So 10 years later, he writes back from jail to the Philippian church, and he writes back to them to say thank you. Thank you for their support. So they've been supporting him in his missionary work, but they've also been supporting him while he's in jail. So if you're in jail in a Roman jail, right, you don't eat and you don't drink unless somebody brings you food. It's not, it's not like our jail today, right? You're going to starve to death or you're going to dehydrate and die unless somebody supports you. And this was the Philippian church. They had sent to them a trusted man, Epaphroditus. He brought that gift to support. And so he writes back, because Epaphroditus had gotten sick and was unable to return. So he writes back to them and sends Epaphroditus back, now that he's well, thanking them for their contribution, their partnership with him in the gospel, continued to support. And he urges them to protect the this amazing church that they have. The Philippian church is, it's an amazing church. It doesn't have, um, there's not a ton of problems. He's not addressing a ton of problems like he is in, in other churches. But there are some threats. There's some threats, some opposition that's growing. So he'll warn of those threats very, very strongly. He'll even call those, these people dogs who would pervert the gospel and distort it and add to it. He warns them of it. But he also sees a possible growing division between some women in the church. And so he knows that he must write to address these things and to urge them to contend faithfully for the gospel and to remain unified. And he is absolutely confident that they will do these things, that they will do this. And so after an initial greeting, Paul and Timothy, to the saints in Philippi with the overseers and deacon. you could, deacons. You can already see a fully formed church functioning in a local city. He launches into this prayer of thanksgiving. And in the middle of this prayer of thanksgiving in Philippians uh, 1.6, he gives them the supreme theological grounding that they'll need to remain faithful in a hostile culture um, amidst, amidst those who would, a growing opposition to them. And he wants them to have supreme confidence. Supreme confidence, not in themselves and their abilities, not in their works. But he wants them to have supreme confidence in God, the God who loves to save sinners. So that's what we're going to see today, three reasons to have confidence in God's work of salvation. And what you have confidence in matters. It, it, it's, this is vastly important. One of the most important, if not the most important thing to understand as a Christian. 
And this message has, I believe, this, from this text, this text has tremendous implications, our ability to enjoy life, to live in peace and security, because what we have confidence in matters. So I would just ask you, what is your confidence in? What is your confidence in? That you are a Christian and that you will remain one faithful to the end and that at the last day you'll be saved. Some might would say, if you were to survey various people, maybe even those in the room today, some might would say, I was baptized as an infant. That's very common. I was baptized into the church as an infant, and so I have confidence that I am a Christian. Another might say, I've been a member of the church for 30 years, and I've served in various capacities, including that of a deacon. Some might would say, my parents are Christians. I've been a Christian my entire life. All I've ever known is the church. I've always been a Christian since I was born. Another person might would say, very common today, at one time when I was young, I walked an aisle and I said a prayer with the pastor, and I know I'm a Christian because at that time I really meant that. And very common today to see many young people go to False Creek and come away with some sense of that, that they were made this decision to follow Christ at False Creek, and so that's the thing they're told never to doubt. But I will tell you, if this is you, if these are the type of things you have confidence in, these things are nothing but foolish confidence. If you hold confidence in the, all of these things, they'll fail you. All of them will fail you. Every one of them. But if you believe what God says in his word today, what he says, you can have the grounds of real confidence. You can have real assurance of salvation. So that's my purpose. My purpose today is in this preaching this text to you that you would, if you are a Christian, you would leave with absolute real biblical confidence. Not in your works, not in your repentance, not in your, even the, the, the amount of faith that you placed in Christ one day, but that you would simply have faith in what God has said and his work, his work of salvation. And then you could say with Paul, as he says in verse 4-7, that he has a peace that surpasses all understanding. And if you're not a Christian today, it's my hope today that you would simply take God as his, at his word that you would realize that any confidence you have in yourself is absolutely foolish confidence, and that as you hear this knowledge, the truth from God's Word, that you would believe what, God sa what He says, and that you would simply place your faith and your trust in Christ alone. And then you can rest in His work and have confidence as well. So today, three reasons to have confidence in God's work of salvation. Number one, if you look back at your text, verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul begins this verse with a statement of confidence. He says, I am sure. I'm sure of something. Now this means he's absolutely positive. Um, we can't be sure of a lot today, but he's sure of something. There's a meme going around. It's of a guy, he goes, are you sure about that? Some of you know what it is. It's like the most annoying meme ever. Are you sure about that? But we live in a time in a day where we can be gaslighted into, into doubting almost anything. People make a, 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 a careers on gaslighting others out of surety of things that they know to actually be true. But my aim today is to give you a grounding of surety, to make you sure of a truth. That's what this word means. It means to be persuaded of the validity of a truth. Now, Paul is absolutely sure. He's got what we would call confidence. So some of your Bibles may translate this word as confidence, but it means to be absolutely sure of the validity of a truth of something. And we live in a, wor a world where there is no truth. Uh, there's no surety of anything anymore. Our culture, particularly in the West, there are very, very little sure things you can hang your hat on. It seems like in our culture, the only thing that's sure is there, there is nothing that is sure. Everything is relative. Everything is subjective. Everything is in a spectrum of flux. And we can even struggle with this because we can see things in our own life that would lend us to start to believe that I can't really be sure of a lot in my life. I mean, we, we don't even know if we'll have the same job 
next year that we have this year because of how the economy might change. We aren't sure that COVID's not going to come back or some other virus and it's going to send the world into absolute turmoil again. And then we don't even know if we'll be alive next week. There's not a lot in this world you can be sure of. But God, but, but God through Paul writing to the Philippians, he gives us something. The one thing we can be absolutely sure of, and Paul has absolute assurance of this, absolute confidence. Now, before we get to the what, what he is confident in, let's ask, who is he confident in? I am sure of this, that he, who is he? Who is the he is confident in? So this is the first question. Well, we only need to back up to verse 3 to see that he's praying, and he's praying to God. I am, I am sure that he, this is God, I thank my God in all remembrance of you always. I am sure that he, now here we come to one of the major distinctions of Christianity from all religions of the world, because this is the key to real Christianity, not westernized American Christianity or whatever we have among ourselves today, which is permeating our culture. Christians are not people who affirm or think that they have done anything to earn God's favor or his acceptance or his love or his forgiveness. Christianity is not about us at all. It's not about us. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we're going to do. It's all about God. It's, what, it's all about what God is, what God has said, what God has promised, what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Second, we need to acknowledge that if we are being honest in a survey of all of the world's religions, even I would say Americanized Christianity, they are saying something completely opposite. The world's religions are saying the exact opposite of that. They are teaching you that you must do something. And not only must you do something one time, you must continue to do something. You can put whatever religion you want into this. They have different things for you to do. But the focus is on you. And you must do it well. You must do it with full vigor. You must be committed and you must stay committed, and the things that you do must balance out in the end in a way that you have done more good in this world than you have bad. That's the world's religion, all religions except for biblical Christianity. David Platt, who wrote the book Radical, recounts a time when he was in India and he met with various religious leaders from all of the different religions that are in India, and together they were meeting, and they were all talking about how they all serve the same God. There is a great God of the mountain, the mountaintop, and that each religion had a different path up this mountain. And everyone is struggling and striving, but climbing their way in their religion to God. And David Platt said, yeah, this is the problem, is that you think the mountain is climbable. Christianity says it's an impossibility, that you can't climb the mountain but that the God of the mountain came down from the mountain as Jesus Christ, as he entered this world, and he made a way for you to God through him. That's Christianity. It's the one unique religion of the world. And David Platt is absolutely right. So in Christianity, our confidence is not in us. If your confidence is in you, then you may not be a Christian. Christian confidence is in God. It is in Christ alone. It is in the cross. It is in Jesus Christ who died for his people, who conquered death, was buried, three days later rose from the dead. That is our confidence. And Paul, he is confident that the good work that he, that is God, that God began in the Philippian believers, that he will bring it to completion. Paul says, I am sure of this. He's absolutely sure of it. So now we ask, what exactly is he talking about? Because he's not maybe being specific. He's just saying, he who began a good work. What does that mean? Well, of course, people can argue about all kinds of things, so people argue about this. Some people will say that Paul is speaking just about their missionary support, that they have been uh, generous, that they've supported him when other churches have not. And, and Paul, he's sure that their partnership in the gospel that they'll continue to, to partner with him and support him. And this doesn't make sense to me. 
for two, I think, obvious reasons. Number one is how this verse ends. This verse ends at the day of Jesus Christ, that he who began a work, good work in you will bring it to completion. When? It doesn't make much sense if he's just talking about financial giving to say it's going to be completed when Jesus Christ comes again. So it just doesn't fit. He's talking about the work of God in salvation in the believer. And I know this because this word is only used one other time in the Bible, the word for began. He who began is only used in Galatians 3.3. That's it. The only other place in your New Testament. In Archomai is the word, and it's the only place it's used. And here's how he uses it there. Galatians 3.3 says to the Galatians, Are you so foolish, having begun, this word, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? That is, you began the work of God, and you began by the work of the Holy Spirit, by grace, are you now going to try to add to that work your own human works, the flesh, and thus corrupt the gospel? That's what the whole book is about. Right, Galatians. You can't add to the work of God. And if you do, you pervert the gospel. So I know because of the day of Christ Jesus, the day of Jesus Christ, and because this word for began by the Spirit is used here, that he is speaking about salvation. God's work in saving a sinner. Now, I think many people today are awfully close to what I think that Paul would condemn as a heretical view of salvation. A view that would rob God of his glory, never give confidence to the believer. Many people think God begins a good work. This is the view. Many people think God begins this good work in me when I decided of my own will to believe and it wasn't until then, it wasn't until I took that first step that God began to do a work in my life. This view is called synergism. So if you're taking notes, we don't often throw out these theological words, but this is the view called synergism. It's that the work of salvation is both your work and God's work. That you cooperate with God. And this brings about salvation, and this, can, this will bring you to the end in this view, people will always place their confidence in something they did. Always. Always. Whether it was that they prayed a prayer one time, whether it was that they got baptized one time, they walked an aisle in front of everyone, and it was embarrassing, but they really did it because they really meant it. It doesn't matter. It's a foolish confidence. It's a foolish confidence. I would then tell you that if this is what you believe, you can never have the assurance that Paul has here and that he wants the Philippians to have. You can't have it. You can't have it because there's always going to come a day where you're going to go, did I really mean it? Was I really sincere? Because I'm more sincere now. Was I really repenting of my sins then? I don't know. Maybe I'm not a Christian. Uh, well, I see that for a time. Maybe I got better, but I don't really read my Bible that much. I don't pray that much. Um, I'm not like these other people that say they're Christians. Uh, maybe I didn't mean it enough. Maybe I need to rededicate my life again. And, I mean, this is the type of stuff. I, the False Creek lives on this, right? That's how they make their numbers. That's how they get their numbers every year. Right? Because they'll throw those things out at you. Are, are you really sure that last time you did it, you really meant it? Don't you really want to be sure this time? And then cue the music, right? Emotionalism, and here we go. And now you have people who, who would say, yeah, I mean, this time I really meant it. But then one day when they get older, I don't know how long it's going to take, but eventually the doubts come. Did I really mean it? Am I really sure that I mean it enough for God to actually respond and save me? You can't ever have the peace that transcends all understanding that Paul's talking about here. The type of peace that when you're thrown in a jail for doing everything God ever wanted you to do and you're, you're literally going to die of starvation, do you think that that kind of view of salvation is going to go, yep, I've been faithful to God and he locked me up in jail for it and I know I'm secure. Now what's going to happen is you're going to go, I did everything right and here I am. My life's miserable. You can never have that peace if that's the view that you hold. You'll have the opposite of peace. You'll have turmoil and stress. You will eventually second-guess yourself, your integrity, your faith. 
whatever. And this is why so many people fall away. One of the reasons, one of the reasons, because they have been promised that if they will do something, right, if they will become a Christian, then God will bless their life. Their life will go well from here on out, that their marriage will be blessed. They won't have any heartache, any pain. And what do they find out? That after they make this decision, their life is just as hard as it was before. And so they think they did something wrong. Maybe I did something wrong. Something's wrong on my end. Eventually they'll rededicate their life and try even harder next time. To only fall into this endless cycle, this endless loop of self-doubt. But at the end of the day, it's really a doubt to believe what God has said. So if you're here today and that's you, I beg you to listen to the testimony of the Bible, to take God as His word, to listen to what He says. Stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at yourself. Have you repented enough? Did I believe enough? Believe on Christ, that He begins the work. Charles Spurgeon says this, It's not the amount of faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith. So what does the Bible tell us about how our salvation began? I just told you the view of the synergism is wrong. What does the Bible say? The Bible says a lot about how our, we begin as a Christian, but what if we just were to stick closely to the book of Philippians? What could we find? Well, first off, Philippians 1.29 is... Uh, this verse, Philippians 1.29, you look at it in your Bible. That's why I asked you to grab one in the pew so you could see it. Um, is the kryptonite of synergism. It's the kryptonite. Paul says this, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Now let's just stop for a second and think about that. Granted means graced, unmerited favor. God has given you unmerited favor. Let's go to the one that people think kind of like, like how could that be? He's granted you to suffer for Christ. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to suffer on Christ's behalf, as Paul is, as other disciples are, as, as Christ himself did, as he suffered in the world and was obedient and persevered. For the Christian to follow in Christ's footsteps is a blessing from God. He says it's unmerited favor. God gives it to you. What a scandalous thing to say today, right? That's not what we believe in American Christianity, that God would grace you to suffer for Christ. But back up. It has been granted to you to believe. Think about it. He's, God has given you grace. He's given you belief. God has given you belief itself. It's plain as day. I don't know how you can make it say anything else than what, it, what God clearly says to us in his word. Are you a Christian today? Are you a Christian trusting in Christ for your salvation? Believing that God became a man, lived a perfect life, he, that, that Jesus died for your sins, in particular yours, not just in theoretical way, that Jesus died for you, that he was buried in the grave for you, that he rose from the dead conquering death on your behalf. Do you believe that today? God gave that to you as a gift. Just that belief, to believe upon Jesus Christ, is given as a gift. You didn't muster it up. You didn't come up with it on your own. You didn't intellectually arrive at a place to where you could override your unbelief and then cling to Christ. All of that, from the beginning to the end, is the work of God in giving you salvation. Just think about those of, uh, of your friends and family that you grew up with or you've been in church with. What is different about you? You're a Christian, they're not. Is it because you're smarter than them? Is it because you're more repentant than them? If it is, then you have something to boast about. But the gospel eliminates all boasting. That The only difference between you and someone who does not believe is that God overcame your unbelief by granting you belief as a gift but it's not only that, it's repentance. God gives through grace the gift of faith and belief, but it's repentance as well. Think about this. After the first Gentile uh, converts uh, the, the Roman centurion, remember Peter has the vision because 
he doesn't want to go and take the gospel there. And God, over, he, he gives him that vision, says, no, you need to go and take the gospel. So he goes and he converts. An unlikely convert, no doubt, right? He comes back and he reports what had happened in Acts 11. This is what they say. They say this. And just to get you inside the mind of the first century, like the disciples and their early church, the early church, the early followers of Jesus, they say, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Another verse, 2 Timothy 2.25. Paul says to Timothy, gently correct your opponents. Perhaps God will grant them repentance. When God saves someone... When he begins the work, when they're justified by faith, we can be sure that all was a gift of God from beginning to end. He gives belief and he gives repentance of sin. When a person first calls out to God for salvation, that is not their doing. It is a gift of God so that no one would boast. And two things have happened clearly. God granted them belief and God grants them repentance. And what does that look like? Well, in Acts 16, the first convert there is a woman named Lydia. Paul goes down to the river to this place of prayer where some women have gathered. And there he shares salvation, the salvation that is found only in Jesus Christ. And one of them converts. Right? And this is what the Bible says. The text literally says that God opened her heart to believe the truth that day. Repentance and faith granted, and the terminology is an open heart. Our hearts by nature are hardened to the truth of the gospel. This gospel is anti-everything that the human nature wants because it completely robs and strips us of any glory that we might have. And if you're here today and you're a Christian, you were saved the same way Lydia was saved. That God overcame the hardness of your heart. He regenerated you. He opened your heart. And he granted you faith and repentance. And I'm not saying you didn't believe. Because God doesn't believe on your behalf. He simply overcomes your unbelief and grants you the gift of faith and belief. God began a good work in you when he lavished grace upon you, granting you repentance and faith in Christ. He gets all the credit there's, no, there's nothing for you to take credit in. There's no grounding of confidence in you whatsoever. So right about now, some of you are wondering, if you're a Christian, what you should be wondering is why. Why did this happen to me? This is great news because this means you're on the right track of having real peace, having real security, having a stable Christian life. This is the most humbling doctrine in the Bible. The only answer is grace. God has given it to you. He has lavished his love and grace upon you apart from any work on your behalf. Now we're on track to having real confidence. Real confidence begins when you start to trust Christ from beginning to the end in salvation. So what is before you is really two ways to, to look at God and salvation. There is the way of synergism, which is unbiblical. And there is the biblical position, which is called monergism. That's the word, monergism. That is the work of God alone. Work of God alone. Trusting in anything else, anything else in your life for your salvation, it's like a holiday at the beach and why the tide is out, you build yourself a little sandcastle. And the sandcastle is your religion. It's your Christianity. But then the troubles of this life are going to come and the tide is going to rise and your sandcastle is going to get washed away. And Jesus tells us, doesn't he, if we build our life on his word, it's like we build our life on a rock. And when the troubles of this life come against us and the storms and sufferings come, no circumstance in this life will shake your confidence that you belong to God, that you're his child, that Christ died for you because your confidence is not in anything in you at all. It's in him. But maybe you're here today and you aren't a Christian and you know that you're not a Christian. And there are many, there are many here, many of you that I know are not Christians. And I pray 
for you often as I write sermons and I think about you that you would become a Christian. What would Paul tell you? What would he tell you? How, how do you do this? I think I, he would tell you what he told the Philippians in chapter 3. Put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in yourself. No confidence in yourself. No confidence in your works. Only in Christ. Look to Christ alone. Look to Christ alone to save you. And then because belief and repentance are gifts of God, that requires you to call out for salvation. That requires for you to call out to God to save you, to give you belief and repentance. That's what you must do today. There's no shortcuts. There's no alternatives. There's no other ways to get to this. You must call out to God to save you, and He alone can. And this is the first reason today, the first of three, that a Christian has confidence or can be confident in their salvation, be confident in the work of God, is that God begins the work. Second, God sustains the work. God sustains the work. God began a work in you. And then if you look back at your text, it says he's going to bring it along to completion. So what's between the beginning? What's between the completion? An act of God bringing you to that place. God bringing you there is his sustaining you, carrying you along to the end. We have a term for this. It's called sanctification. How does God bring us along? How does God bring us along from the beginning to the end, to the final day of Jesus Christ? How does he keep us? Of course, we might would add the things that you may think of off the top of your head, like prayer and Bible study and things like that. But I think in Philippians, we can discern three, three ways that God brings us along. Okay. Number one, God sanctifies you through active participation in a local church. God takes a group of people who have nothing in common. He, he brings them together at this place called Philippi, a woman, a Philippian jailer, and a girl who had uh, practiced the dark arts and had magical powers by a demon. And then we have these three converts, and then we know there were more. And then they come together, and they form something called a local church to which God will build them up in. And they will partner together with each other to advance the gospel in their city and around the Roman Empire. And this process of partnership with each other for the cause of Christ sanctifies believers. Look at Philippians 1, 3-5. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that is the definition of a local church. A local church is a partnership of believers for the advancement of the gospel. It's what a church is. And being part of a local community, a local church, it builds us up. It sanctifies us. It helps us. It perseveres us to the end. Look at Philippians 1.7. How else he speaks about the church. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And this community of saints here at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, they're in partnership they are about the work of ministry. And as they are about the work of the ministry, God is at work in them, bringing them along to the final day, conforming them into the image of His Son. Second, God sanctifies you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look, if you might have to turn the page in your Bible, look at chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And you might say, hang on a second, that looks like it's up to me. But notice it's work out. It's not work for. It's work out what you already possess, what you already have, to work it out into the world. And then we come to verse 13, which solidifies this for us. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. 
Paul wants the Philippians to work, but, but he doesn't just want them to work. He wants them to rest in God. Now, now we can't get lazy here because, because we read the verse that says he get, he, both to will and to work, that this comes from God, that he gives us the will. <coughs> we can't get lazy. You would never get anything of laziness from reading Paul. Right? You are to pursue God. You are to pursue the Christian life, to pursue sanctification. You're to press on, to actively be engaged. Look, look at what he says in chapter 3, 12 through 15. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Perhaps the greatest Christian man to ever live, and we won't know till that final day, perhaps the greatest disciple, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because Christ has made me his, now I press on toward him. Don't get the order backwards. That's a recipe for disaster. I press on for Christ, and if I press on long enough, he'll make me his own. That is not what he says at all. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he adds this. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you thinks otherwise, God will do that to you too. So, do you not believe you must press on, must actively be active in your Christian faith, actively pursuing Christ? Perhaps you are immature in your faith. Because he says this is a mark of maturity. That the mature Christian knows that because of the work of Christ, because he's made me his, that I now press on toward him until that day. You will never get a sense of spiritual laziness from this letter. Even though he will absolutely affirm that any good work that you do, the willingness to do it, and the work itself were motivated by the Holy Spirit. Again, God gets all the glory. He provides the motivation. It is God that works in you. How? Well, Jesus promised that as, in John 14, that when he left, when he would ascend to the right hand, he wouldn't leave us as orphans. He would send us another helper. He would send us the Holy Spirit who would teach us all things and teach us to follow Christ and to bring to remembrance all that he had said. He did not leave us alone. He left us his Spirit to guide us, and the Spirit produces fruit. The Spirit produces fruit. So how does God bring us along? Through the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. This is Galatians 5.22, and as George reminded us last week, it's the fruit, not fruits, it's the fruit, that if a person is a Christian, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is producing this in you. Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So he brings us along by giving us the Spirit, producing fruit in us, and also by continually transforming us into the image of his Son. Notice how much activity is involved here on the Spirit's behalf as God brings you along toward the end. 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18, listen to this. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." God is at work in you if you are a believer. He, hasn't, he didn't begin a work in you and then leave you to yourself. He gave you the gift of the Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit in you and through the course of your life will transform you more and more and more into the image of Christ. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. But also we see that not only does He bring us along by giving us the local church and that partnership in the gospel and the gift of the Spirit, but God sanctifies you through the example of other Christians. God sanctifies you this way as well. Paul will say, as you probably remember, it's a famous passage, 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay, now look at chapter 317 of Philippians. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
It's a great blessing that we have to be in a church and have the blessing of other Christians that we can look at and look to and see Christ, even, even older, more mature Christians. Those who have been following Christ a long time. What a great blessing that they are to the church. Not just a blessing, an absolute necessity, because who will you have to even look to and to imitate if not older, more mature believers? This is why Paul spoke of Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2 in 19 through 20. It's worth you going there and reading those verses straight through. He commends to them these two men who are worthy of watching and worthy of emulating their example in the faith. Paul could not come to minister to these Philippians, so he sends to them two other people who they can watch, who they can see, two faithful men they could imitate. And the power of imitation is, is just a way of human learning. There's just no way around it. You see it from the earliest times when you have a child and they start to grow. It's an absolute life hack for athletes the video, to, to be able to watch a video and to say, look how this athlete does this. You need to do it like this. This is how it's done. I mean, the same thing plays out in any dynamic in the military, right? What should a, non, a non-commissioned officer be? Someone that uh, uh, a new soldier can look at and say, this is what it's like. This is what I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to do. And that's the way it is in the local church. This is the dynamic of the local church. That you have other Christians that younger Christians can look at. And they can see. This is is what following Jesus looks like. And what a blessing that is to us. But we shouldn't just see this as just a thing that's there. You should see it as God's active work in your life. That God is actively bringing you along by giving you these gifts And the means, these are the means that he uses to persevere you to the end. So be confident, brothers and sisters, confident in God. Be confident in his work in your life. And the first reason you can be confident in God's work is that he begins the work in your life. The second reason you can be confident in God's work is that he sustains the work in your life. He doesn't begin and then stall out. He keeps working. And now lastly, the third, God completes the work. Some of you might concede. Some people might concede Christ has begun the work. I see that you say Christ is, God is sustaining work in my life through the power of the Spirit. But how do I know that I will not fall away? How do I know that God will complete the work? The answer to this question rests solely in the character and nature of God. That's it. We don't need to overcomplicate this. It's very simple. God finishes what he starts. That's the answer. So if you take one thing away, you could take that away. God finishes what he starts. He's dependable. You can trust his character and nature. If you were to, if you were to, to plan to build a home, to build a home today, though I don't know that's the smartest investment today with the way things are, but if you were to try to build a home today, you're going to shop around, right, for some builders, and you're going to look at builders, and you're going to see what they do. And, and you know, I know from my past experience before as a pastor, there are some builders that are not dependable. Right? Some of them, they don't finish their work. They don't complete their work. You could even see in some neighborhoods uh, slabs of homes that have been poured and maybe some of, uh, some, of, some of the frame of the house is starting to go up, maybe parts of the plumbing here or there, and there it sits. There it will sit for a year, maybe two years. Maybe then the contractor goes out of business. It remains un- it remains uncompleted. So we have all these human examples all around us of people that are undependable. And you, you could even think in your mind right now of the nature of all the people in your life and how they have not been dependable to you, how they've let you down, how they haven't followed through with their word. And, and, and what we don't ever want to do, but, but the thing which we often do is we project our human experience up on God. We think God is like that that he says things and he doesn't follow through with them. But God is not like that. For God to do that would be a direct, a direct contradiction in his very nature. And if God were to contradict himself, I think the universe would end. I think the whole universe would just explode to nothing. God cannot contradict himself 
And we know two things about God's nature that give great confidence to us, that God finishes what he starts. And one is, well, there are two, God never changes and God never lies. God never changes. God never changes. Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Well, what is the context? <laughs> the, the Israelites, they are not dependable, right? They're just like us. They don't follow through with what they're supposed to do. They don't complete what they start. They don't keep their end of the covenant like ever. We're very much like them, but God is not like them. God says, I do not change, and therefore you are not consumed. They're unfaithful. God is faithful. They don't do what they're supposed to do. God always does what he says he will do. He's always faithful. Throughout the Bible, all you will see is God giving a promise, God following it up, God keeping it. Even at times where you looked and you see this is an impossibility for God to keep this promise, God keeps his promise every time. He never changes. He never goes back on his word. What he says he will do, he will do. But secondly, God can't lie. God can't lie. You ever wonder, what can God not do? You ever play that game, that, the that theology game? What can God not do? Well, here's something God can't do. He can't lie. Allah can lie. But the one true and living God, the only real God who exists, he can't lie. It would be a fundamental denial of all of reality. God can't lie. It's not a possibility. He only tells the truth because he is truth. Hebrews 6.18 literally says, it is impossible for God to lie. Titus 2, God who never lies promised before the ages began. So absolutely crucial. And you having confidence and trusting God in, the, in your salvation is trusting in the character and nature of God. He doesn't change. He can't lie. And my, my grandmother, my, my grandma, Cox, she lives up in Tuttle. She's known as Grandma in Tuttle. She grew up Wesleyan um, holiness tradition. And the Wesleyan holiness tradition, as you know, is Arminian. And they believe you can lose your salvation. And so that's the way she grew up. She grew up in this holiness movement, right? And if you know about the holiness movement, it's, it's kind of works-based, kind of human performance-based. And she never had assurance of salvation. I'm talking well into her adult life. Always, always nagging at her. Always in this inner turmoil. Never at rest. Always wondering if she lost her salvation because she sinned again or whatever she did. And she said, she told me, she said, one day I was about to have a nervous breakdown. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. She has a sensitive spirit. So she lay down on the couch. She said, I lay down on the couch full of anxiety. She's got this couch. Same couch has been there since I was a little kid. And she said she was just praying and she felt that the Holy Spirit was ministering to her and was urging her to get up and read her Bible. So she got up and she read her Bible and she read John 10, 27 through 30. And she said when she read the verse and she simply believed what it said, all of that anxiety, all of that fear just fell away. What does it say? Jesus says this in John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Did you guys know the nature of eternal life? Is it, it's eternal? There's a lot of theology in that word, right? I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So she said she simply believed what it said. She simply took God at his word. So what will it take for you to have real confidence? Real confidence in your salvation. You simply take God at his word. He always does what he says he will do. He never changes. He never lies. God finishes what he starts. 
The last words Jesus uttered before he gave up his spirit, what did he say? As he's hanging on the cross and bleeding and dying. He could have said anything. He said, it is finished. It's finished. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian and Jesus said, it is finished, then it's finished. You may not be at the finish line yet. You're called to press on to the finish line. You may not be there yet. You may not be finished, but he's already finished. And if he's already finished, then it's over. It's as good as done because Jesus secured your victory. So put no confidence in the flesh. This is what he will tell the Philippians. Put no confidence in the flesh, only confidence in the Lord from beginning to end. This is Paul's belief. And that's why in such surety and confidence, he could say this to the Philippians. I'm sure of this. He will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And we don't know what that day looks like exactly. We get some insight here and there in the Bible, and we even get some insight into the day of Jesus Christ here in the book of Philippians. Just a little bit. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3.20 of this day, 3.20 through 21. He says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even subject all things to himself. So we're actively pressing on toward that day, knowing we have not arrived yet because Christ has made me his own. But one day is coming when the finish line comes. The Lord Jesus Christ descends. We see him as he is. And the appearing of Christ transforms our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And that's it. That's the completion. He will bring it to that day. Well, we will be transformed. Right? No more pain. No more struggle with sin. Right? Are, are you tired with struggling with sin? Well, there's coming a day when it's coming to completion, and you're no longer going to struggle with sin. You're no longer going to be sick. There's going to be no more pain and sorrow and no more tears. Because we will be like Him as He appears. We will be like Him forever as He is. And that is the day that our sanctification comes to completion, and we will finally have what we know as glorification. We will be glorified. We will be changed. We will be as He is. And we will have such enjoyment with Christ forever in His presence. We will enjoy God in a perfect creation for all time. I'm so looking forward to that day. And I know you are as well. But some people may look at Christians and they'll be naysayers. They'll say, Christians don't look anything like this. The church is messed up. Christians are messed up. They're fallen. They're sinful. And I acknowledge all of those things. I acknowledge them all. The church in many places even looks filthy and dirty. Often at times, worthy of being rebuked directly by God, as we would see in many places in His Word. But He's not done yet. He's not done with us yet. He's carrying us along. Before His work is done, we will be perfect. We will be as Christ is. Right now, we are positionally perfect. We are justified. You can't get any more justified than when God declares you righteous. But we still struggle with sin. But one day, that struggle is going to be over. And one day, His bride is going to be perfect. The church will be perfect. We'll all be perfect. We will be done with this corrupted, corrupted body of death and we will put on immortality. The work of God. This is the work of God and the work of God will be completed. God finishes what He starts. And if God has begun a work in you, you're going to see that day. He's going to bring you there. Through all of His various means, the work of God in individuals and His church will be completed because He finishes what He starts. And so we've seen today three reasons to be confident in God's work and salvation. I like complicated outlines. And so there, God begins the work, God sustains the work, and God completes the work. If you're here today and you call yourself a Christian, I'll ask you the same question again that I did at the beginning. Why? What will you tell people? Will you say, it's because one time I felt real convicted and I walked down an aisle and I said a prayer. Will you say, one time I was at camp 
and you know, a bunch of people were going forward, and they, and I felt that I should too. Well, you say one time you were baptized when you were when you were young, or maybe you were baptized as an adult, or you say you were baptized as a baby into the church. Will you say that you've always been a Christian because your mom and your dad were? Brothers and sisters, I hope that after today, the only answer that you will ever give, and the only one that will give you real stability and real assurance, is that is this: Christ died for me. He saved me. He's sanctifying me. And he will bring it to completion on the final day. What he started in my life, he will complete. That is the only answer that a Christian need to give. If you're here today, maybe, and you are not a Christian, you're wondering, what must I do to be saved? As I already told you before, you just need to call out to God. You need to fix your eyes upon Christ, and you need to call out to him to save you. And you say, well, I'm not quite there yet because you know what? I just don't know if I'm there. Charles Spurgeon, as only the Prince of Preachers can, has a little, little section in a tract where he addresses people just like you. They think, you think there's all of these other criteria that need to be met first before it comes, so he goes through them one by one. And he wants to remind you there is not any saving power anywhere except for Christ, and the goal is for you to only look to Christ, and that's it. So one person would say, and it's interesting how people never change. These same people that he addressed are right there. You're sitting right there. He says, I, I could probably trust Christ more if I felt my sins more. If I felt more guilty, then maybe I would, but I don't feel that guilty. And he says, it's the blood of Christ that saves, not your feeling of your sin. Not your, not your repentance. How will you know if your repentance is enough? How will you know if you felt it enough? It's only the blood of Christ. And in another one he would say, but I don't esteem him as I should. Christ isn't great enough in my mind as he should be. So therefore, I, I can't come to Christ. And he says, my friend, that's another insidious form of the same error. God does not say when I see your estimate of the blood of Christ, will I save you? He says when I see the blood. I will save. But then another says, but if I only had more faith, I don't have enough faith to believe in Jesus and to be saved. If I had more, then I could possibly have hope. He says that is another deadly error. You are not to be saved by your efficacy of your faith, but in the efficacy of Christ. So he says the answer is simply this, to turn your eyes then, not upon your repentance, not upon the amount of your faith, not on your esteem of Christ, but simply Christ. To look alone to Christ, and that's all. And he says, it is your hold of Christ that saves you. It's not your hold of him, as only Charles Spurgeon can. So if you're here today, and you have heard this message and you feel that God has laid hold of your heart as he did Lydia's and he's opened your heart to see who Christ is, that he's fully God and fully man, he's true God, true man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life. He died for sinners. He didn't die for his sins. He died for your sins upon the cross. He bled and died. He gave it all up and he said it is finished. If the Spirit is opening your heart to that truth, if you believe that He died for you, that He was buried, that He rose again on the third day, then, brothers and sisters, it's time to commit your, your life to Christ. Simply believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then I urge you to make that public. To make it public. And the only legitimate form of that is baptism. It's not walking an aisle. I'm not going to play some music and ask you to come down here. That's not making your faith public. I will ask you, though, to come and talk to me later about baptism so we can make your faith public. I pray that God has done a work in your life today if you aren't a believer. And if you're here and you're still just on the edge, and I know there many of you are, you're just there. You're not there. Stop looking at anything else. Only look at Christ. Look at how he loves sinners to die for you. To give his life for you. He couldn't give anything else. He gave all that he had. And he secures eternal life. Look only to Christ. And that vision of Christ will transform you. I pray that you would today.
Because false confidence is in the flesh, but real confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would continually fix our eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. God, and the doubts that we have would just fall away from us. And that because Christ has made us his own, Lord, may we press on toward the goal of the upward call. God in Christ, may we press on. May we be active in our faith, pursuing to live life as, as Christians, not because we're trying to earn something, but because we already possess the greatest gift in the world. And because we do, now we're free. We're free to live in a way that would please you. For those here that aren't Christians, Lord, I pray that you would grant them repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.